Baltimore Orioles are being sold, and we also have a major investment from a group of sports team owners in the commercial wing of the PGA Tour. It's Thursday, February 1st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Tour has announced a major investment from a group of U.S. sports owners as it continues to negotiate with Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports breaking news reporter Margaret Fleming. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks, Alan. Uh, so what are the basic contours of this deal? This deal has been in the works for a while. Basically, what happened is a group of owners, like you said, uh, primarily the Fenway Sports Group, who owns the Red Sox, um, and Liverpool FC, and then you got owners from the Boston Celtics, uh, owners from the Atlanta Falcons, a bunch of other teams, a bunch of really prominent people in American sports. And they just gave $1.5 billion to this new commercial enterprise called PGA Tour Enterprises, uh, the commercial arm, I guess, a new arm of the PGA Tour. And then it can go up to $3 billion, um, over time. But right now they're starting with $1.5 billion. Um, and the other big thing is that uh, players are going to be able to get equity in this company. Um, so that's kind of the PGA Tour trying to keep up a little bit with some of the really, really big sums that players get if they go over to live golf. Um, and a lot of prominent players have done that because the amount of money they can get from there is just massive. And so this is part of the way the PGA Tour is trying to compete with that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few parts I want to dive in on here. Uh, but yeah, that part where um, I think it's up to 200 PGA Tour members, and they have to be a member, so that means they're not in Live Golf, can become equity holders in this new company. Because yeah, the PGA Tour just does not have the money that uh, the Saudi Arabia um, Sovereign Wealth Fund does. But but they can yeah offer things like equity in this new company. So that's one more thing they have to try to keep people in the fold here. Live Golf is back to signing golfers. Um, they, they took a pause from that as negotiations are going on. Um, but yeah, they signed John Rahm in December. And um, and yeah, they're, they're continuing to add to the roster. Um, so in terms of negotiations with the PIF, um, do we know where those stand at this point? Uh, source with knowledge told Front Office Sports that the kind of set target date for that is around the Masters in April. But uh, those originally had a deadline of December 31st. And I know, you know, AJ's come on here on the podcast to talk about that before, how they missed it. But it's not the end of the world for the negotiations. They're still, um, I think, likely to happen. Um, and that's probably also going to be in the, you know, billion dollar range um, as well. But no one knows exactly quite what that number is going to look like yet or exactly when that's going to happen. But it was noted in the press release from the PGA Tour that the agreement with SSG is not going to take away from anything that in any future investment from the PAF. That's still possible, even with this other investment from these other American sports owners. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this investment will be what pushes those negotiations towards some kind of resolution just because I think there's this power imbalance on both sides where the PGA tour has the legacy, the loyalty, 
the the recognition among people in the U.S., whereas the PIF has all the money in the world, and um, and so this investment gives the PGA Tour some financial heft, and and because it starts at one point five, can go up to three billion. That gives them something of a lever to say, well, if this falls apart, we're not just going to we we don't have nothing. <laughs> we we can continue to exist. We can continue to. Um, you know, to pay our golfers and maybe not pay them everything that Liv is paying them, but um, we can we can pay them something. And um, and the PGA Tour, you know, they're in it for the long haul. You know, who knows if Saudi Arabia at some point loses its appetite for this if if Liv doesn't really catch on as a as a spectator thing? Because I think that the eyeballs are still with the PGA Tour. Um, what are you watching for as as all this continues to progress? I think I'll be watching for sponsors for the PGA Tour and seeing how they react to all of this. Uh, a, I mean, recently Wells Fargo um, said that they weren't going to be doing you know the same level of investment that they've been doing their major sponsor, and a big reason for that is just some of these massive purses that the PGA Tour has been giving to its golfers. You know, really, you know, spurred on by competition from Live. So I think it'll be interesting to see how the sponsors react to this now that the PGA Tour has. 1.5 to $3 billion in, in other areas. Um, if it'll still be sustainable for them to, you know, hang on to these tournaments with these growing purses or, um, if it will still be too much for them and, and this investment doesn't really matter as much, it's still too much money. So that's, that's an interesting dynamic, um, from, from a marketing perspective that I think, uh, will be one to watch. Yeah, for sure. Margaret Fleming, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A group called the Portland Diamond Project put out a statement on Tuesday saying they want to bring a Major League Baseball team to the Oregon City. But that's just the beginning. The group said it was in talks to buy the 164-acre Red Tail Golf Course to create, quote, the largest sports and entertainment district in the history of Major League Baseball. The land deal is worth a reported $50 million. The group had previously bid $30 million for the same site and had explored other options as well. Portland Diamond Project was founded by former Nike executive Craig Cheek and also includes Denver Broncos quarterback Russell Wilson, his wife, the pop star Sierra, and former Trailblazers play-by-play announcer Mike Barrett. Portland is hardly alone in vying for a baseball team whenever MLB decides it is ready to add two new clubs. While Nashville is probably still the frontrunner to get a team, a group in Orlando is also trying to make it happen. So is Salt Lake City, a place that wants to host the A's for a few years so that they can show that they're up to the challenge of having a full-time team. And Oakland would love to replace the A's, whose move to Las Vegas remains a complete mess. MLB will have plenty of cities to pick from when it decides to expand, and the fact that the Portland group is making a $50 million land purchase with no assurances of getting a team shows just how competitive this process will be. Another bidder has emerged for Paramount Global. Media mogul Byron Allen has offered $14 billion for the parent company of CBS, this year's Super Bowl broadcaster. Allen reportedly offered $18.5 billion for the company last year and was rejected. He is competing with Skydance Media, owned by David Ellison, which is also exploring a bid. Allen is not afraid to make offers on multi-billion dollar properties. He has bid on other media companies and tried to buy both the Denver Broncos and Washington Commanders when they are for sale. Paramount, as CNBC's Alex Sherman explained on the show on Monday, is having trouble keeping up in a world that is steadily moving towards streaming. So they're looking to sell while the major streamers are looking to expand. YouTube TV is considering expanding internationally as it builds on the momentum it got from acquiring NFL Sunday Ticket in a seven-year, $2 billion per season deal. 
that growth would align with the NFL's own aspirations as it looks to become a more global league. And if you want to watch football and basketball and other sports at the same time, YouTube is rolling out a feature that allows users to customize their multi-view screens so that people can watch four games at once and pick which games they are. The center of gravity in media is shifting from the legacy broadcasters to the tech giants, and sports are driving many of the biggest shifts. Up next, the Baltimore Orioles, who have been owned by Peter Angelos for 31 years, are being sold to a group led by David Rubenstein for $1.725 billion. I spoke to Sam Dingman, host of Sports Explains the World, on the end of one era for Orioles fans and the beginning of another, and that conversation is coming up next. All right, I'm joined now by Sam Dingman, host of Sports Explains the World on Wondery. And prior to that, he was the host of The Rumor, which delves deep into Baltimore Orioles history and fandom. Welcome, Sam. Owen, thanks for having me. Um, as we were just saying uh, before we started recording, uh, it's a wonderful day not just to be an Orioles fan, but to be a podcaster. Because uh, David Rubenstein, who we're about to talk about, uh, is the host of not one, but two podcasts. So good to have uh, the brother and sisterhood represented in the MLB ownership group. Yes, at last, someone, someone out there, you know, <laughs> representing the, the podcasters of the world uh, were finally in power. So news hits on Tuesday that Peter Angelos has agreed to sell the Baltimore Orioles to a group led by David Rubenstein, founder of the Carlisle Group. Uh, just how did this hit you when, when you first saw this? You know, it's... It's been really interesting looking at the response because there's been a lot of hair on fire, um, tweet storm, um, you know, uh, Jonah Hill shaking head back and forth dot gif sort of uh, reactions, all of which I completely understand. My own personal response was I just felt myself get very quiet and realize that something very, very important to me is about to undergo a profound change. Um, I'm of the age of Orioles fans. I'm 41. So, you know, the Angeloses have been running the team for 30 years, which is basically the entirety of my awareness as a baseball fan. It's, it's all I've ever known as an Orioles fan. My whole appreciation of the team is basically shaped by their philosophy. And it was just this sense. I'm also about to undergo a couple of other big changes in my life. I'm getting married this year. I'm about to do a big move. Um, so it was just a realization that like, you know, things change. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, from the Orioles fan reaction that I saw just, you know, in social media, um, what I, a lot of people are just like dancing in the streets from what I can tell. Like I, I think people generally dislike the owners of their sports teams for whatever reason, but it felt like the, the Angeloses um, were sort of in the upper tier of, you know, like ding dong, the witch is dead. Like we're, uh, you know, finally moving on from this. Um, if you could speak, when does that, does that resonate for you for someone deeper in Orioles fandom? Um, does that sound like um, something that captures the picture? And, and where does that come from? Yeah, you know, I, I think I maybe differ a little bit from other Orioles fans in the sense that as as much as I recognized the shortcomings of Peter Angelos as an owner, um, he definitely was meddlesome in the team's uh, deal-making a lot in his active days as owner and had a reputation for um, not letting the front office do its thing um, in a way that hindered important 
uh, transactions from taking place. Um, he was, I, I think he has developed maybe a slightly unfair reputation as an owner who prevented the team from making any moves whatsoever. Um, while the Orioles were never a team under Angelos that was at the very, very bleeding edge of free agent conquest, they did, over the years, make a lot of really interesting high-stakes trades and and contract signings, some of which worked out well and some of which didn't, you know? Um, it was under Angelos that we brought in players like Rafael Palmero and Albert Bell and Roberto Alomar. And, um, I mean, these are Hall of Fame caliber talents. Miguel Tejada, um, a lot of those guys <laughs> uh, ended up having the stink of performance-enhancing drugs attached to them, but that's obviously not unique to the Orioles. So, um, And even as recently as uh, deals like um, Alex Cobb and Ubaldo Jimenez, you know, uh, we obviously uh, look down our nose at those deals now, but if you look at the free agent pitchers who are available this year, they're roughly of the talent level of a Jimenez or a Cobb. Um, and a lot of Orioles fans are clamoring for those kind of signings to happen. And that's not the kind of thing that Angelos ever shied away from. I think the actions of his son <laughs> in recent years have um, understandably really darkened the cloud over the Angelos family name, including, you know, I'll, I'll include myself in that. Because the thing with Angelos, uh, the senior to me, was that he was, he, he was, we knew who he was. Um, and he he didn't do things like John Angelos has done, where he will publicly proclaim that he's going to open the books of the team for the media to read on multiple occasions, only to then not do that, which is just kind of a sniveling weirdo move. <laughs> you know, it's very like mustache twirly in a like, you know, old timey cartoon way. It's like, why are you doing that. Um, and then I think one of the things for me that was really, really gross uh, this past season, um, prior to the whole like lying about the lease signing thing uh, on the night that the Orioles clinched the division, which was bad. But maybe even more than that was, you know, there was this very embarrassing situation where he had allegedly the team's play-by-play um, -play announcer on Masson, the television network, suspended for making a very, like, minorly negative remark about the team's performance at Tropicana Field in the past. Um, had the guy taken off the air, put on suspension, um, got in, rightfully, a firestorm uh, of trouble about it, pretended that he kind of didn't have anything to do with it or that they, they were, quote, like reviewing their personnel policies or something, and then ended up giving a long interview to the New York Times, uh, and no shade, by the way, to Tyler Kepner, who did the interview, who was an amazing journalist, um, and I think in asking questions of John Angelos in this interview exposed him for who he is. But the idea that he would have so betrayed his own fan base and then take a step towards public accountability in a national newspaper that has no connection to local. Fa it was just so obvious that he was not thinking about us. Um, and you can say a lot of things about Peter Angelos, but he, it was never like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that, that broadcaster moment and we covered it on the show and it was honestly something where I watched the clip and I was like, wait, what, what am I missing? Like, 
I didn't even see the offensive part. Like, I, and, I've, and obviously we've seen broadcasters say things that, you know, walk up to a line of like, well, maybe they're sort of telling the truth, but that's not, the bosses aren't going to like that. I wasn't even sure, like, what did the bosses not like here? Uh, and yeah, so the Orioles, um, I mean, one reason I thought this sale, I was surprised to see that the sale was happening is because they've been, been involved in this family dispute, which is, you know, I, I guess resolved to some degree, at least legally, where basically a fight over the team, among other things, um, and, and over Peter Angelos's law firm um, that involves John Angelos has been running the team, Georgia Angelos, his, his wife, uh, and Louis Angelos, uh, John's brother. Um, and Peter, we should say, is, is I think, 94 and in failing health. And so this is all kind of happening uh, in his absence, effectively. Um, but yeah, it felt like that was um, that and the possibility of selling the team was affecting the team. I mean, you, you spoke about how you know, Peter Angelos was, you know, he was not afraid to, to make a big signing, even if he wasn't the Yankees or the Red Sox. Um, I've been waiting for the Orioles to sign somebody. Sign, sign, I mean, they signed Craig Kimbrell, I think, but they're a team on the rise that could another pitcher or two would really solidify what they've got there. Um, and um, it's, it's, I think it's, it's one of those notable omissions where, because they're not the Rays either. They're not, or at least they're not supposed to be the Rays, but they have a payroll that, that is a set. They have been the Rays the last few years. Uh, so I've been wondering if they will get up back to the middle. Um, and I guess we, we should now bring in uh, the incoming owner, uh, David Rubenstein and his group. Um, so yeah, I just, sort of threw a lot at you so you can respond to any of that but i'm also i, I want to get into what we know about rubenstein and are there any tea leaves that indicate what kind of owner he's going to be sure uh yeah i mean there's there's uh, this is obviously the parlor game of of the moment on social media um i think there's a lot of orioles fans who are eager for this to be a moment where because we now have a billionaire owner like other teams that have billionaire owners we're going to kind of jump to the front of the line in terms of hyper-aggressive spending in the vein of a Steve Cohen. Um, and, you know, I, I think it would be worthwhile for for we Orioles fans to pump the brakes on that a little bit um, for a couple reasons. One, if you look at that kind of hyper-aggressive spending, particularly over the last few years, with the exception of the Dodgers, um, it has not worked out very well. <laughs> You know, I mean, a, a look at the Padres and the Mets um, is really all you need to understand uh, how quickly you can spend a bunch of very stupid money and really put your franchise in a lot of really deep trouble for the foreseeable future. Um, my hope is that, uh, you know, the the team, I think, whose mode we should look to follow is the Braves. Um, because what the Braves have done is uh, invest very, very deeply in a core that is going to keep them competitive for years and years and years to come with plenty of time to build up new players to replace those players. And they've also made smart additions around the perimeter to kind of bolster that. Um, and that very much seems like the future of really smart ownership when you look at the modern game. Now, what I think is interesting about that from a David Rubenstein standpoint is that he is uh, not just a very, 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 very rich man, but he is a student of leadership. 
Um, he's, in fact, written an entire book <laughs> about the nature of good leadership and, and what it means to be a really good leader. And I, I somewhat jokingly mentioned his two podcasts earlier, but one of them is about business leadership, which he does it on uh, for Bloomberg, I believe. The other is about history. Um, he is a passionate, passionate student of history. And so I think if we look at the ways that David Rubenstein has established himself as the rich, influential figure that he is, it's much more likely that he is going to take a studious, deeply researched approach to how to run a team um, than it is that he's going to start just like throwing money at the wall in hopes of uh, bringing a championship to Baltimore next year. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I think everyone wants to be the Braves right now, but the Orioles have that opportunity. And I think you're going to find out in the next year or two, like, do, are we going to see big extensions for Gunnar Henderson, Adley Rushman, Jackson Holiday, all those guys? Um, because they, they've got the core. Now they just have to lock them into these long-term deals. And then you're at the Braves. Um, uh, so also included in the group, um, is Cal Ripken, um, who is the the subject um, of your of your your, your podcast miniseries, The Rumor? Uh, what does it mean to have him as part of this deal? You know, I, I've been really struggling with my reactions to this because I, it it should be ecstasy, right? I, I should be just overjoyed at the idea that Cal Ripken is now part of the decision-making team on the Orioles. But the thing is, I, you know, the track record of athletes of his stature running teams isn't great. <laughs> you know, like I, I think of the Derek Jeter example. I think of the Michael Jordan example. Um, you know, that's the stratosphere that that Ripken is in when it comes to athletes of a certain reputation. And even if we look um, at you know, semi-recent Orioles history, Mike Flanagan uh, was involved in the front office for the Orioles not that long ago. And, you know, it's possible that he was hamstrung a bit by um, ownership and other things, but um, it just wasn't, I think, quite the story that we wanted it to be. Um, and I think the thing that I think has been easy for a lot of Orioles fans to forget this offseason is how much of the excitement of the last two seasons we owe to Mike Elias, who can be very frustrating in his public messaging, is maybe the least charismatic speaker on the planet, <laughs> um, and is like studiously vague and cautious in the way that he characterizes things. But we have abundant proof now that behind the scenes, he is doing an extraordinary amount of very cutting edge research to remake this team from the bottom up. And my hope is that Ripken, who we know is a devotee of a very old-fashioned way of playing baseball, of thinking about player development, doesn't interfere with that. And my reason, I guess, for being somewhat concerned about that is there's a very haunting excerpt from... Uh, Tom Verducci's book about Joe Torre, the title of which is escaping me at the moment, um, where there's an anecdote in there about, you know, in the later 90s, uh, the Orioles trying to make some strategic changes um, in terms of how they 
play defense and stuff like that. And Rifkin being very resistant to that because he felt like he had a say in, in how things ought to go. Which, you know, you can understand from his position, particularly when he was still a member of the team. But it does seem a little bit like he has a bit of that stubbornness about the way it used to be done in him. And I guess my fear is that that doesn't get that 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 would get in the way of the approach that Elias and Sig Madal and everybody else on that that team has taken because it really does represent as the last two years have shown basically the best of uh what's currently possible when it comes to front office thinking especially as you mentioned on a shoestring budget so I love you Cal but my hope is that you'll kind of stay out of the way and, and, you know, maybe show up at spring training and, um, you know, m- let Jackson holiday, uh, feel like he's in the presence of greatness. I-, I think that sort of thing will go much farther than him, uh, doing what, you know, Peter Angelos used to do and, and get more involved than, he, than he should have been. Yeah. And if I had to guess, that would be what I think is that, you know, he's, he's a nice headline. He's part of the group, you know, you'll see him in the suites, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't think he'll be calling the shots, but who knows? Uh, yeah. Um, before we go, just anything, any other reactions to this or just, you know, what, what you're watching for as the, the new era of the Orioles begins? Well, I guess, I guess the big thing I, I want to say to my fellow Orioles fans is that um, we, last year was so fun because of it was such a validation of this identity that I think we all carry very deeply, which is how dare you underestimate us? How dare you write us off? How dare you call us the embarrassment of the league for several years in a row? We're coming for you. We're coming for you. And and we're going to do it our way. And you're not going to expect it when it happens. And God damn it, you better watch out. Um, and I think there is a danger as we start to expect this sort of cutting to the front of the line and behaving like other teams that some folks have been, uh, hopeful might happen if, if, and when Rubenstein takes over, um, it would be very easy to, those things are a big part of what's fun about being an Orioles fan as painful as it can be, um, the sense that we do things our own way, the sense that um, we're sort of about our business, the sense that we do things uh, as a team and as a unit and and don't need the prestige and glitz of, of like the big boys in the American League East. I personally don't want us to lose that. Um, and I think we should be careful about wholesale swapping out our identities just because our new owner's fortune uh, has a B in front of it instead of an M. <laughs> All right. Well, Sam Dingman, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. The group purchasing the Orioles reportedly includes former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, former Baltimore Mayor Kurt Schmoke, and retired NBA star Grant Hill. For those of you wondering if the sale of the Orioles clears the way for the sale of the Washington Nationals, the answer is not necessarily. The big holdup on that front is that the two teams are locked in a dispute over the regional sports network Masson, which broadcasts both of them, and the arrival of new owners doesn't change the fundamentals there. It does, of course, bring in new negotiating partners who may be more willing to strike a deal. We shall see. 
That's it for today. Subscribe to the show and share this episode with any Orioles fans in your life. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.